Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason, and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich. What's up? Uh, you know, hanging in there. Just uh, We just passed another trade deadline. Um, always uh, interesting and exciting times. And um, kind of generated the idea for the latest episode based on that, although it was something that we kind of expected to happen, but didn't happen. Yes. Um, <laughs> We're talking about instances in which uh, franchise icons were traded away. Um, you know, we wanted to sort of talk about instances where, you know, the player is still a plausible star. So, you know, Akeem Olajuwon at the end of his career doesn't count, for right, example, right, right. You know, which I guess is technically a signing trade. But, you know, stuff where, like, you know, it's still someone who's, you know, pretty good, um, you know, important in the franchise's history. Um and doesn't leave for reasons where, you know, basically the, the player forces trade. So Vince Carter leaving the Raptors, for instance, doesn't really count because, you know, it's more the team, the team's hand was kind of forced there. It wasn't really, you know, a mutual decision or a team kind of moving on, you know, into a new era. It was that that's, I think, something different there. So, you know, we were expecting Kyle Lowry probably would be leaving the Raptors. The Raptors are kind of a team that's, you know, seems to be in transition. Um, seems like both sides were kind of realizing that, oh, okay, it might, might be time to move on to the air, but, but at least for the moment, that's not happening. Yeah. The, the whole idea of the show and the whole text chain that, that, that started it was, Hey, yo, Kyle Lowry's going to get traded. So this might be a good idea. And we were like, yeah, sure. So, uh, we basically got a lot of the notes and got a lot of the ideas with the assumption that Kyle Lowry would be traded. Well, that did not happen, but do not fear. We found a a suitable replacement, I would say, in, in a lot of ways. Not maybe not exactly the same, but gosh darn it, I think we did an okay job given you know, yeah, what's trade yeah, that well, gave us. So Right. I mean Nikola Vucevic, you know, was traded from the uh, magic to the uh Bulls. And you know, it's interesting because um Obviously, Vucevic is not in, as important in NBA history as Lowry's going to end up being with, you know, a, a championship Raptors team and and all that. But, I mean, you know, he has been the defining player of the magic in the post-Dwight Howard, Howard era. You know, certainly, you know, been a very good player, you know, all-star a couple times. Um, certainly um, a very good player and an important player in that franchise's history. But ultimately, it's the, you know, the worst era for, for, the, uh, for the team and is probably – you know, a little bit like, um, you know, like it's, let's say Buck Williams for the Nets um, or even like Mitch Richmond for the Kings and, and Williams and Richmond, I think are both better players, certainly Richmond than uh, you know, Vucevic was, but kind of a similar thing is like, well, yeah, kind of pl- not really super remembered um, today because it's such a blah era for the team. Yeah. The best player in, in a terrible era for, for a franchise is still, I mean, it still kind of counts. And what's weird yeah. about Vucevic is, is I didn't know if I quite realized just how impactful and how long he was in Orlando as well. So he's played, played there for eight and a half years, which especially in today's uh, NBA is a very, very long run, all the way from his age 22 uh, to his age 30. And, and it wasn't until I kind of dug into the numbers that I realized, my God, he is like a an Orlando Magic, you know, franchise, you know, icon or whatever you want to say. It, it, I Obviously, like you said, the success is not there. It is the worst period in, in, in Orlando Magic history. But still, I mean, he's fourth in games played behind Nick Anderson, Jameer Nelson, and Dwight Howard. He's first in field goals and field goal attempts, which that kind of surprised me uh, as well. Sixth in points per game behind McGrady, Shaq, Steve Francis, Penny Hardaway, and Dwight Howard, which obviously speaks to Orlando's early history and how good that early history was. And and I guess it also speaks to uh, to Vucevic as well. And uh, third in win shares, which I found pretty interesting as well, just behind Dwight Howard uh, and Nick Anderson. And obviously Dwight Howard, a, a, a surefire Hall of Famer, you know, no slouch should be behind him. Uh, and Nick Anderson, obviously, the the what I would consider probably 
the next level of like franchise. You know, you have your Dwight Howards, your Trace McGrady's, your Shaqs, your Pennies. The next level is is in Nick Anderson, and I think you got to put Vucevic right on that next level. So, I mean, he he's in that mix. He definitely counts for something. And, and yeah, it is. You know, the Lowry thing is a little tougher because Lowry, obviously, a, a perennial playoff player. He wins the title with with Toronto, so he's on an entirely different level because of that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a bad. You know, run for Orlando, but still, the, the Vucevic was a big part of whatever this era <laughs> that you would call this Orlando Magic era. Uh, potentially the Vucevic era. I don't know. I, I guess yeah. we'll, we'll, if history will say, we'll, we'll dictate uh, what we call this era of, of, yeah. of the Orlando Magic. But uh, it wasn't sure. a great era. But hey, he was he was the the top dog in it. So hey, we're, we made it was going to be about Lowry. So we we made do with Vucevic. So live with it. All right, we were yeah, too far in the notes, so we had to we had, a, we had a retcon it a little bit. But again, I think we did an okay job. So. Oh, I, hopefully, yeah. So, uh, yes, I, but, but um, most of the players, if not all of them, we discuss will probably more be more impactful in NBA history than uh, Nikola Vucevic was. So, just for uh, hey, that that's yeah. my Chicago Bulls very own Nikola Vucevic. So you you Chicago shut Bulls, up, yes. all right, all right. Oh yeah, him yeah. and Zach Levine. Uh, I I think Jason. I think Sky is the limit right now. I'm, I'm hey, it, so. they they are they are diving into the uh, playing round. That's for sure, yeah, you know? oh, absolutely. Yeah, they, they, well, I mean, uh, they stumbled a little course. bit, but yeah, we're, we're they're back on track. So uh, oh, it's, yeah, the playing round, the Western, the Eastern Conference Finals, the NBA Finals, the championship. It's all yeah, it's all obviously. coming into place. It all starts with the 10th seed. That's exactly the, right. Right. That's, like, that's what every that's team what dreams of. Like, look. If we get the 10th seed, golly knows it's going to happen after that guy. So just go for it. Yeah, it's a miracle. Yeah, we, we believe in it. So they still play. Uh, they still play five game uh, uh, rounds, right? Now are they seven still? Seven? <laughs> sure. Hey, who knows? Seven's who tough. Got? Seven's tough. Yeah, uh, they should make yeah. the first round five again. That was that was better. Hey, hey go back to three. You know, it's three. Uh, three's even yeah. better. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, you never know what can happen in three uh, game series. So. So, uh, yeah, before we get into the show, we want to uh, talk to you about our uh, sponsor. And we are uh, brought to you today by Danette May and Mindful Health LLC, uh, featuring Danette May's top superfood product from her Earth Echo Foods line, Cacao Bliss. Yes, nothing feels better than being able to enjoy rich, smooth, and creamy chocolate and knowing you are doing something good for your body. Uh, Echo Foods line, the Cacao Bliss, uh, starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining their miraculous health benefits. And then they blend it with uh, turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. That sounds good to me. The result is you're going to fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate. You'll remove your cravings. You'll facilitate weight loss. You'll boost your energy, and you'll reduce your inflammation with one simple drink. Just one simple drink for all that stuff. And not only that, it's friendly to paleo, gluten-free, keto, vegan, and vegetarian diets. Can you believe that? Uh, That seems like... It's too good to be true, Jason, if you ask me. But anyway, it is not because for the last eight years, uh, they have been the global leader in superfoods market in the superfoods market, and they're proud to have served millions of customers worldwide. This is not a fly-by-night operation. They've been doing it for eight plus years, becoming a leader in the superfoods market. And today, we are offering our listeners up to fifteen percent off when they use the code Minute Fifteen. That's at EarthEchoFoods.com slash minute media you go to earth slash minute media and you'll get 50 percent off when you use that promo code minute 15 so uh make sure you do that again earth slash minute media use promo code minute 15 to get up to 15 percent off your 
first order there. So, all right, there you go. Thank you. Important the yeah. podcast, important everything we do here. So, great stuff. Yeah, you will not be making a mistake when you uh, when you do that. Uh, but uh, something that uh, was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, what a segue. <laughs> The Atlanta Hawks uh, training wow. Dominique Wilkins to uh, the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, this happened on March 24th, 1994. Uh, they traded the legend Dominique Wilkins and a first round pick. They, uh, they, they traded the first round pick to the Los Angeles Clippers for Danny Manning. So thank Wilkins- God it's the Clippers and they grabbed, attracted Greg Miner. So they're not Atlanta doesn't have to kick themselves too much because they gave it to the Clippers and the Clippers would ine- inevitably fuck it up. But, uh, yeah, what are you doing? Why? Why are you doing this? Right. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, so this we're considering this category trading your legend when you probably shouldn't. A few other trades that we kind of considered here, uh, and these are arguable, but, you know, this is kind of what we're labeling it as. Patrick Ewing with the Knicks, Chet Walker with the Sixers, Walt Frazier with the Knicks. You know, in Ewing and Frazier's case, just feels like, okay, they, they should just – Retire as Knicks, you know. They yeah, you're so close to the end. Just, just come yeah. on. <laughs> just yeah. get a few, get a two more seasons in there, and, and yeah, day. yeah. And, and with Chet Walker, it's like you know the Sixers. It probably the, the the biggest parallel to Wilkins. I mean, Walker isn't as important to Sixers history as Wilkins is to Hawks history, but definitely he was still a, you know, an excellent player. You know, near his prime. Um, you know, ended up having a you know great second half of his career with the Bulls. You know, the Sixers gave him up for basically no reason. Now Wilkins, a little bit later in his career, and. Yeah, I can kind of see some sense in this divorced of fan sentiment because you, you, you got to think, you know, that at this point, you know, Wilkins, he's 34. He had an Achilles tendon rupture two years bef- before, and he was about to be a free agent. So, you know, they didn't want to lose him. They didn't want to pay the money that it would take to keep him. So business wise, you, you, you can at least kind of understand, you know, what they're thinking here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, this is probably the most notorious instance of a team trading away the most legendary star in its history. I mean, basically forever altering the relationship between the team and uh, the city. And yeah, I mean, I think to Hawks fans, you know, Dominique, I think, meant to the franchise the same as Magic Johnson to the Lakers, you know, Larry Bird to the Celtics, Michael Jordan to the Bulls. You know, basically equally fa- unfathomable that he would be traded away, you know, 11 and a half years into um, his career. Um, now, you know, his game really hadn't slipped yet. I mean, it, it would soon after this, but, you know, um, over the past two seasons, he'd averaged 28 points per game on 550 true shooting percentage, six points in three rebounds per game, 2.7 assists, 1.1 steals. So his number is still really, really good. Not quite as efficient as he'd been, and, you know, certainly not quite the high flyer he'd been, but he was still, you know, excellent player. And, you know, the Hawks were 36 and 16 at the time of the trade. They had a 14 game win streak that year they were um first in their conference is actually the the only time in nba history that a team in first place in their conference traded uh, their leading score after the all-star break so that that's a pretty remarkable stat right there it, it is yeah and and so I, i'm kind of with you that i i think it makes some sense in if in purely like transactional player for player talent for talent or whatever you can totally buy divorcing you know Dominique Wilkins and the the aura that Dominique had and how important he was to Atlanta you can definitely understand that if if you got sent this trade if you're the Atlanta GM at this time and you get sent the trade we're going to give you Danny Manning who's six years younger uh two-time all-star who just led the freaking Clippers to the playoffs for God's sakes we're going to give you this guy if you give us Dominique Wilkins 
And you could see that. You could absolutely say, okay, well, that mm, that's pretty interesting. With that said, like you said, w- w- once you add in that it's Dominique freaking Wilkins and you're the Atlanta Hawks, it, it is it makes it very difficult. But I understand. I totally understand if you divorce yourself from all that and if you just say, hey, from a purely business on the court sense, it makes all the sense in the world to, to hey, if you're going to take Dominique Wilkins for us and you're going to give us Danny Manning, like, okay, sure, that sounds great. And 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 arguably, if you know, let's say Danny Manning does, you know, go for another ten years with the the, the Atlanta Hawks and they make the playoffs a bunch of times and they make a bunch of runs in the East or whatever. Would this still sting as much as it would? I mean, it may, probably it probably would, but still, like I think hindsight is being twenty twenty here. Where if Danny Manning did carve out a nice career with Atlanta, maybe people would say, "Wow, what a, you know, what a what a what a solid trade that the Atlanta Hawks made there." You know, as as Dominique is declining, they were able to move him for Danny Manning and and keep the team together for you know another decade to have you know another run. And obviously, it doesn't work that way. But yeah, you you can totally sell yourself on it. The problem though is it's Dominique Wilkins in Atlanta, and and, and you're right, he is one of those guys similar to a Patrick Ewing, similar to a Chet Walker, similar to a Walt Frazier. That you almost just say, ah, man, like just just keep him. You know what I mean? Like, come on, like you're, you know, let let, let him retire with the team, let him kind of end his career with the team. It, it, it totally makes all the sense in the world to do that, but uh, it is tough. If they, if this trade comes across your, you know, your desk, it's hard to pass it up. It really it really is. And 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 yeah. I, so I I will defend him from that standpoint, but it does it it, it sucked for sure. Right. It, so what's what else is interesting is there is an article from Sports Illustrated. This is March 14th, 94. This is the same, the infamous Baggett Michael, Michael Jordan baseball cover. This is this issue of Sports Illustrated. There is a article um, called Dan's the Man. Uh, the uh, the subhead is Danny Manning's acquisition by Atlanta has given the, le- the Hawks a leg up in the East. And at this point, uh, the Hawks are actually five and zero since the trade. Danny Manning had hit two game winners for the Hawks, and it, yes. it, it it highlights how well he was already fitting in, how well the Hawks were humming. It talks about how you know, like Wilkins had kind of clashed with some of the other players um, over the ball, particularly Kevin Willis. How you know um, that basically, you know, like Lenny Wilkins was like, oh, you know, it's kind of nice to have somebody who passes the ball more and who has ball movement. And, you know, there was, a, a, you know, talk about how the Hawks were more fun to watch, you know, without, um, you know, uh, Dominique holding the ball. And, you know, John Konkank, who's kind of the one holdover from the, you know, the mid-80s days of the Hawks, basically, I guess, well, I guess Willis was too. But um, he, you know, he has a quote that says, you know, I know it makes me a much better shooter to get the pass when I expect it rather than with two seconds on the shot clock after somebody has dribbled and weaved and spun and couldn't get their shot and then flicked it out to me and said, launch. Ouch. <laughs> right. Now, he was more positive about – he said other things that were very nice about me on that one. So so um, you like the, like the Bag at Michael uh, headline. You're, you're, you're taking salacious parts of an article and, and, and using it to sell <laughs> magazines, Jason. How dare you? Yeah. You and yeah. Sports Illustrated really on some – some kick these days in I, we really are. <laughs> we absolutely are. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I guess, and there's some more insight that they basically, you know, it sounds like the Atlanta GM who is Pete Babcock and Wilkins um, agent, Steve Kaufman, you know, they had been kind of talking about it for a while, you know, since that summer thinking that maybe, you know, <laughs> this is funny, you know, but uh, the <laughs> idea that, they're they're in LA. Maybe you know Donald Sterling would offer you know Nick more more money. Than yeah, the fucking right, Steve. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Steve, you idiot. What are you right. talking about? No, he's not. Right, it's Donald so, Sterling. Okay, Steve. Oh no. Hey, well, Donald in LA. Oh, no, no. Okay, yeah, sure, great. Yeah. 
So in the regular season, it worked out fine. Um, you know, in terms of on the court, you know, the Hawks finished with the number one seed. 50, they were fifty-seven and twenty-five in the East. They were nineteen and seven in games that Manning played. Uh, they had almost a five SRS for the entire season, but uh, they were upset in the second round by the fifth-seeded uh, Pacers, who had, had ten fewer wins that year. Uh, and honestly, what seems like a terrible playoff series, all six games had margins of eleven or more points. Uh, so not a not a fun playoff series for anybody to uh, watch. And then Manning, you know, there was some talk that, oh yeah, you know, like we we think we can bring him in. You know, we think we think we can keep him. That was part of it. But yeah, he ends up uh, only signing a one year, one million dollar deal with Phoenix. Um, but weird. then then. He would tear his left ACL in his first year with the Suns, and then would sign with the Suns with a deal of, of six years and forty million in the offseason. So <laughs> I don't understand um, any of this. What is going yeah. on? Was this but, some was this some under the table deal that Phoenix was like trying to avoid a tax? Have we have we revealed something here? Like this has to be I, like they had to be like a handshake agreement that hey, we're going to sign you for this deal right now, but like actually it's this deal. Type because right. why? I mean, why would he? I don't understand why he would sign a one-year, one million-dollar deal. First off, I don't understand why Atlanta s- traded for him and then didn't offer him a contract right away. But I guess it's the Atlanta Hawks, so it's whatever. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think they offered him a contract, and he just did not accept it. He decided to go to the Suns um, instead. So for the yeah, one-year, one, yeah, something's something's a little fishy here. I don't know. I don't like it. Right. So. Um, I, uh, I I do not remember. I mean, yes, I, I'm sure there was some sort of th- this type of agreement, whether he actually, um, you know, wh- whether it was illegal under the time or not. I, I, I don't remember that um, at all. Or um, they felt that, um, you know, so I, I guess, OK, they, they said that I guess Jerry Colangelo said, like, hey, you know, Manning, he made a sacrifice to sign with us for one year for one million. So we're going to give him, you know, the contract that, um, you know, that, that, that he should have. So, um, so, and they, they were like clear that um, it's like, well, he came back from his rehab. He's looking good. You know, we're, we're willing to take the risk basically. So, and you know, he ended up playing well for Phoenix, although definitely, you know, would, would be affected by the injuries for the rest of his career, but he won six man of the year. Like, I mean, he had a, a pretty good career even after that, but um, obviously, you know, not, not, uh, not a star level player after that. point. No. Yeah. Yeah. Those injuries definitely, uh, uh, um, did a number on him, and, and I'm kind of looking at some some stuff here, and, and they said that uh, uh, you know I'm looking at a New York Times article uh, at the time, the actual day of the of the transaction. It just says uh, the NBA team would have to rework its payroll to get Manning under the league salary cap because the Suns had just signed veteran AC Green to a five year deal worth twenty five million dollars. So um, I don't know, yeah, something <laughs> some sort of risk or some sort of whatever. But uh, Manning is, is is quoted as saying, you know, he wanted to win a championship there, so maybe it was just like, hey, look, I'm sick of playing for, you know, the LA Clippers and 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 bad teams, so I'm gonna go to Phoenix for one year, one million dollars. I I don't know, yeah. it's it's a little wild, and and again, I'm I'm very very strange for a lot of reasons why you know Atlanta wasn't able, why he didn't want to stay with Atlanta for whatever reason, why he signed with Phoenix for one year, one million or whatever. But I guess it ended up working out. He got the he got the big deal, and like you said, he, he never quite got back to where he was at this point in the career with the injuries kind of piling up. But he ended up carving out a pretty nice career, just not as like a number one guy or a star like a lot of people at this time thought that that, that was the trajectory for him. And and uh, a very very Phoenix thing here. They, they they signed a lot of guys in the '90s with the idea that hey, this is a guy's our star, we're ready to go. I ended up yeah. working for many, many of those guys. So, sure. So, 
perhaps even worse, Dominique ends up signing a uh, a deal with the Boston uh, Celtics. I guess it was three years, ten point nine million, but he only played in Boston for one year, so um, not sure exactly what happened there. Apparently. The, Celt- the Clippers had offered him a $7.5 million over three years and with a $800,000 bonus for making the playoffs, but he ended up turning uh, that one uh, down. So I guess you know, it was okay offer from the uh, Clippers, but not, uh, not that fantastic. So um, NBA Trades, one of our favorite blogs, uh, has a great article on the situation, and there's some, some quotes that we found there that I think were worth um, talking about. So Dominique Wilkins himself from the LA Times – uh, said, hey, I'm surprised that it went down, but I think it's probably the best move for me, even though I felt we had a chance to compete for a championship this year. Also, Seattle Times says that uh, he, he said, um, the reception you got with the Clippers, um, they've given me more respect here than I ever got in Atlanta, which is really a, kind of a surprising yes. thing. For Are you sure? Are you sure? <laughs> I mean, I understand. You know, we're, we're all a little tense right now, but. Yeah. Are you sure about that? I don't know. Yeah. Um, Donald Sterling Clippers, are you right, sure? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, uh, Kevin Lockery, who was a, um, at that point, a Sports Illustrated analyst, former Hawks head coach, you know, former longtime NBA head coach, um, his quote, which ended up being uh, exactly correct, uh, this is a franchise killer. By far the toughest trade for Atlanta fans. In all honesty, skill-wise, this is not a bad trade. However, from a fan base, it set the Hawks back a long way. I've been in Atlanta for 20 years, and Dominique has been the biggest star athletically in those 20 years, and that's counting baseball, football, and hockey twice. So pretty uh, it ended up being pretty much exactly the deal. Yeah, I lived in Atlanta for a few years, as you know, and definitely something, you know, it was about 10 years after this trade, and it was something that people still talked about. It's like, yeah, I stopped being a Hawks fan pretty much after, you know, uh, they traded away Dominique. It was, you know, like ripping my um, – my heart out kind of thing and yeah maybe, maybe if they'd been able to keep manning and he'd been successful or at least you know been able to advance to the finals that year and had manning i'm you know i think the trade might have been thought up differently um i'm not sure you know that resigning keeping him and resigning him would have had a good outcome either you know like i, I just i don't know if like the fans are going to stick around post dominique wilkins i think he's just the kind of that iconic guy that no matter how he left it probably was going to hurt the team, um, hurt the fans, but probably you know him being traded away in the midst of a really successful season probably um, did hurt that. Now, one thing that was a benefit of not re-signing Manning or or Dominique is that they did eventually have the cap room to sign to come in who was their biggest free agent ever, and they you know had some good success in the late nineties, you know, because of that. So they did bounce back, you know, a couple years later, pretty well. But yeah, it, from a fan base perspective, yeah, as we said, it definitely was very harmful. No, no, you're absolutely right that it's it's really difficult to figure out how to get rid of a guy, you know, an icon like that. Like that, that's where you really, really hope that like that dude just retires. You know what I mean? Like just after the year, he's just like, you know what, I'm done. I don't want to play anymore. It's like, oh, phew, thank God, we don't have to like, you know, or or you know, you give him your best offer, and he goes, nah, you know what, I really want to go. Back back and play with X or whatever, or, you know, I want to play in my hometown of, you know, so it, it's stuff like that, that you really kind of hope for that makes either him the bad guy, or it's like a mutually agreed upon, like he just retires and it's like, Oh, thank God. We don't have to really kind of do this. Cause yeah, there's really no way whether you don't resign or whether you trade him, it was not going to go well uh, with, with an icon like that, especially a guy who, who still did want to play 
uh, for a few more years. So yeah, I don't know if there was ever a great solution to it, uh, but this one maybe yeah, maybe not the best. But uh, let's move on to our next one here. Uh, so sending your legend back home, and this one we're going to talk about is Clyde Drexler from the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, the trade goes down. Let me get the exact date for you guys. It is February 1995. I want to make sure I have the exact date. February 14th, 1995, the Portland Trailblazers uh, trade Clyde Drexler with Tracy Murray uh, to the Houston Rockets for Otis Thorpe, Marcelo Nicola, and a 1995 first-round draft pick. It ended up becoming Randolph Childress. So uh, we don't have to worry about that first-round draft pick or uh, Marcelo Nicola ever again. But, uh, yeah, some other examples of this. Um, Dave Bing is an interesting one, uh, getting sent from the Pistons uh, to the Bullets, uh, you know, kind of a legend going back uh, to his hometown in, in, in kind of the, the latter stages of his career where he's still competitive. He's still a, de- a decent player, but uh, definitely on the on the backswing of his career. And that's really, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the history of, of Clyde here, but you know, he, he comes in in 1983, already a very talented Blazers team coming off a 46 win season, a conference semifinals appearance. Uh, they have Michael Thompson, Jim Paxson, Calvin Nat, fat lever, uh, at this time as well. Uh, and Clyde is actually, he's drafted 14th overall. A lot of people forget that uh, about Clyde Drexler, probably definitely overplayed his, his draft position for sure, which is weird. I, I, I would love to kind of know, and I don't know enough about this era of, of, uh, of NBA draft, you know, knowledge or whatever, but you know, he was a pretty big deal in college, like a very, very good player. Obviously, a part of the, you know, the, the, the you know, Houston, who, who's a great college team. Uh, I'm pretty surprised he, he fell all the way to 14th, given his body and and, and uh, you know how competitive he was uh, in college basketball. But anyway, uh, the reason he does go to a, a pretty good Blazers team is that he actually came th- uh, in a draft. Uh, uh, or came 14th because of a trade, I should say, with the Denver Nuggets. Uh, he was traded as a future first-round draft pick uh, to the Blazers for T.R. Dunn. Uh, so the Nuggets said, hey, you can take these draft picks, but we really, really want T.R. Dunn. And uh, I guess yeah. T.R. Dunn, he was good for the Nuggets, I guess. But uh, I, mean, sure. I, guess, I guess we'd rather have Clyde Drexler than T.R. Dunn probably. Pro- but probably. I mean, yeah. I would. I don't know about you, Jay. I shouldn't put words in your mouth, Jason. But sure. uh, do you think Clyde Drexler is a better player than T.R. Dunn? I mean, I think so, but I just I just defended halfway the uh, Dominic Wilkins trade, so you know, I'm not. So a you're not. You're not maybe. really anybody we should really be asking about this. But no, either one. Yeah. yeah, one of those classic good for both team trades. You know, Denver sure. and TR done, and Portland got Clyde Drexler, so it ended up working. But anyway, uh, I, I kind of forgot about this as well. When he is drafted by Portland, he has kind of a contract impasse with, with Portland. He knocks out his entire first training camp. Uh, and he, they kind of ease him in because of that. He he's eased into his role. He starts only three games his rookie year, averages just seven point seven uh, points per game in his rookie season. Uh, by his third year, though, Drexler really does arrive onto the scene. He makes the All Star game. Uh, he finishes the year with eighteen point five points per game. Uh, he would then miss one All Star game in nineteen eighty seven. Then he'd have a streak of seven straight. Uh, from 1988 to 1994. And, of course, unfortunately, the early parts of Drexler's career and really all of Drexler's career uh, is unfortunately mired by the decision of Portland to not draft Michael Jordan in the 1984 draft because they had Clyde and they didn't need another guard, so they instead draft big man Sam Bowie. Um, If I may interrupt for a moment, that's incredibly stupid given the fact that he averaged 7.7 points per game in his rookie season. Like, like there was no sense that Clyde Drexler was going to be a huge star after that, I would think, after that point. You know? Right, I, right. It's it's yeah. it's really strange. And, yeah, that, that's I, I was kind of thinking, like, you know, then I, I – because I always forgot that he got eased into it. Because I, I, for whatever right. reason, always thought Clyde Drexler got drafted, like, pretty high. And they're like, hey, it's Clyde Drexler. Go play and score points for us and do everything. But it's not that way. Like, they, you know, they they – kind of dick him around on, on contract stuff. He's comes and then they average seven points per game and starts only three games. Like, I don't know. I probably just draft Michael Jordan, but uh, it's actually an interesting uh, quote I was able to find here uh, of Jack Ramsey who was the, the coach of Portland at this time. Uh, and he says about 
not drafting Michael Jordan. He says, we have played games in which three guys, Vandeweghe, they, they just re- they had just gotten Kiki Vandeweghe as well, Jim Paxson and Clyde Drexler, who played Jordan's position, scored 80 points. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. Cool. Like, all right. All right. I mean, all right. Then, all right. Get, go get Sam Bowie. So, yeah, I don't know. I've always, right. I've always thought that it was like, well, Portland made a good move, but now, like, more and more as I kind of do some research, especially looking at this, it's like, I mean, I probably would have just drafted Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, Clyde really wasn't, like, a sure thing yet. And, and, and yeah, I don't know. It's very strange. But Jack Ramsey was pretty confident. And I guess I guess he was rewarded with that confidence because uh, uh, Drexler does, by 1988, kind of ascend into what I would call, you know, pretty pretty much superstardom. Uh, at this point, he averages more than 27 points per game in two straight seasons. Uh, he makes the All-NBA third team in 1988. Uh, by 1990, he helps the Blazers to their first NBA Finals since 1977. Uh, they'd be going up against the defending champion Detroit Pistons. Obviously, it doesn't work out very well for Portland. Uh, Detroit goes back-to-back, but Drexler performs well. 26.4 points per game, 7.8 rebounds per game, uh, 6.2 assists per game, and 1.8 steals per game uh, for Drexler during those finals. So he played his role uh, there. Uh, the run, though, solidified Drexler as kind of Portland's franchise cornerstone. And uh, following the season, he agrees to a, a one-year contract extension which we'll talk about that in a sec. Uh, Future day balloon payment of $8.75 million. Uh, The reason for that is the NBA is currently going under an ongoing uh, collective bargaining agreement discussion, and the Blazers wanted to guarantee that they could pay their star when the time came. Uh, But that balloon payment uh, becomes the highest annual salary for an athlete uh, in any team sport and and would be eclipsed many, 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 many times over, obviously, Uh, especially in the NBA when contracts go nuts and the new collective bargaining comes out. But uh, anyway, the following year, Portland wins 63 games, the best record in the league. Uh, Clyde would finish sixth in MVP voting and an All-NBA second team honors. Uh, Portland makes it to the Western Conference Finals for the second consecutive year. Uh, but ultimately, the Los Angeles Lakers beat them to set up the NBA Finals matchup against the Michael Jordan-led Chicago Bulls. It does not go very well for the Lakers, and that's kind of the end of the Lakers dynasty. And then by 1992, the Blazers are ready again. Everything kind of comes together for the team. Uh, they finish with the best record in the West, 57 wins. Uh, Drexel makes the All-NBA first team uh, as well. Uh, he has averages of 25 points per game, 6.6 rebounds per game, and 6.7 assists per game. Uh, He finishes second in MVP voting behind Michael Jordan, uh, and that made this finals matchup that much more interesting. Uh, Sports Illustrated has a a big article kind of previewing the series. Uh, It's called, uh, the headline says, On a Collision Course, uh, Michael Jordan and his number one rival, Portland's Clyde Drexler, are primed for a playoff showdown. So... There we go. Uh, doesn't, uh, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I like this series as, as a Bulls fan, but uh, it doesn't go very well. Uh, I would say this is probably the best Jordan Bulls team, this 1992 team. I mean, they're absolutely machines uh, this year. And Portland, you know, they, they valiantly play. They end up going, you know, winning the, you know, they, they really do try here, but it's like, I don't think anybody was going to beat this 1992 Bulls team because they, they cruise to a finals win. Uh, Michael Jordan hits some threes, shrugs. Cliff Robinson does some stuff. Doesn't sound enough. The Bulls win. So uh, Bulls win the title there. Uh, then the team, Portland, unfortunately, regresses in 1993 and 1994. Drexler's starting to slow down a little bit. Uh, have some injury issues as well. He'd make two more All-Star games, but he'd play only 49 games uh, in 1993. And his point-per-game average falls below 20, uh, 20 points per game for the first time uh, since 1986. And then a lot of things start to happen here in this 1994 offseason. The Trailblazers restructure their front office. Uh, top decision maker and vice president of basketball operations, Jeff Petrie. He resigns. Uh, he's replaced by Bob Wittisit. Uh, is it Wittisit? I don't. I never knew how to pronounce this guy's name, but I think it's Wittisit. Yeah, Wittisit. Yeah, Wittisit. Wittisit. Whatever. Yeah. So Wittisit. Uh, on the coaching side, though, more importantly, Rick Adelman is fired, and the Blazers bring in PJ Carlissimo as his replacement. I always, uh, I always thought PJ was like, <laughs> but everybody hated PJ, man. 
Yeah. I'm, oh. looking through, I'm looking through these quotes. We'll talk about these quotes a little bit. But, man, they didn't like PJ here. Uh, Sprewell didn't really like PJ. I would I would say that's oh, a safe assumption. I, yeah, right. <laughs> I like, yeah. Did anybody like PJ? He got a lot of jobs, so somebody liked him. But, man. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is the beginning of the end because Drexler uh, sounds very unsure uh, about this. This is from the uh, Moscow Pullman Daily News. I don't believe that's Moscow, Russia. I believe it's another town called Moscow. But uh, unless hey, maybe Moscow, Russia is very, very interested in in, in Blazers sure. <laughs> and Rick Adelman and, and and the coaching to hire. But uh, regardless, yeah. here's Drexler's quote. He says, "Some people may say it's a very sad day, and I agree. Some people may say it's a new beginning or a new dawn. That will have to wait." And find out. So that doesn't sound very good. That sounds like a man who does not like what's going on. Another issue in Portland, Chris Dudley's contract, which was a constant issue at this time with every, pretty much every team had this effect in some way, shape or form. Obviously, in the last dance, the Scottie Pippen deal, very famous one as well, where he signs his deal before that CBA. Then pretty much everybody after him gets paid a lot more money. And he's looking like, hey, what the hell? <laughs> you know, where's my money? Uh, Sean Kemp and the Seattle Supersonics. Obviously, that would become an issue with what Joe Klein, right, where he'd get just ungodly amounts of money. Uh, and Sean Kemp would say, hey, what about my money? Well, in this case in Portland, it's Chris Dudley, one of our famous, uh, one of our very, very fa- uh, f- favorite, I should say, uh, players that played forever and never really did anything at all. But, hey, he got a lot of money because the Blazers signed Dudley the previous year uh, with the intent to re-sign him to the following year to a six-year, $24 million contract under a loophole through the bird exception. So they did everything they could to give Chris freaking Dudley six years and $24 million. This made Dudley the second highest paid blazer. Uh, and then obviously guys like Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, Buck Williams, and Cliff Robinson all had contracts that were much, much smaller and were much, much better players than Chris Dudley. So um, definitely, <laughs> definitely uh, understandable uh, there. And that was a constant issue in, in, in this time period with that new CBA where, uh, where guys would look at guys that got more money than them and say, what the hell's going on here? But anyway, uh, Drexler uh, in Portland, not happy uh, in his biography, Clyde the Glide. Uh, he says this, quote, I would have never let, let Rick go, Rick Adelman, obviously. Uh, we had a great relationship. It hurt when he was fired. I mean, first you take away my center and Kevin Duckworth. Then you take away my coach. Then Jeff Petrie was gone. And they also removed the team doctor, Bob Cook. I really enjoyed those people. I had some problems with that. I was extremely unhappy with those moves. Uh, during camp, I went to Bob and told him I wanted to trade. He said, Clyde, let's wait and see what we have. See how this team is playing. Let's give PJ a chance. If you want, really want to be traded, play well so I can get uh, someone good in return for you. Uh, I just wanted to get out at that point. My role on the team had changed. I was no longer the do-everything guy. I had fewer opportunities to do things. It was probably for the best. They weren't sure how healthy I was going to be. PJ tried to work with me. He was trying to get Rod Strickland more of a chance to create and penetrate, trying to get Cliff Robinson a few more scoring opportunities, and trying to bring along some of the younger players. The team worked hard together. Uh, we played hard. PJ demanded that. I like that about him. So, hey, okay. Clyde doesn't hate PJ anymore. No. <laughs> in, in 2004, he decided, I guess I don't hate uh, him that much. Anyway, Drexler then uh, demands, uh, quote, quote, demands to be traded. He does it privately, kind of tells these guys, okay, I, I think we're done here. Uh, and then after being involved in a rumored deal to Miami, Harold Miner for Clyde Drexler. What do you think about that one? <laughs> sounds like sounds great. Harold Miner, you know, he, he dunks it just like Jordan. He's going to be great. Baby Jordan. Yeah, a little baby yeah. Jordan there. That would have been a, right. a very interesting deal for Portland. Say, hey, look, 
We didn't get Michael Jordan in 1984, but we got the new Michael Jordan, Harold Miner, and then that wouldn't have gone well either. Uh, Clyde Drexler in Miami is an interesting fit in 1995. I wonder how it goes. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, finally, in February, the trade is made, and Drexler was reunited with his former college teammate, Hakeem Olajuwon, uh, his hometown team, and he has a chance to join a team that had just won the championship the year prior. Uh, Obviously, most people know, or if you're a fan of NBA history, you know that team really struggled in the following season. Clyde Drexler comes, and then things kind of come together for that team. That works out well. They would, uh, of course, win the title, go back-to-back. Clyde would finally get a, a championship in the NBA. Uh, he played consistently good basketball. I, I kind of forgot about this as well. He played really you know, decent enough basketball uh, until he retired finally uh, in 1998. And as far as uh, Drexler's career, to this day, still to this day, Clyde Drexler is the Blazers' career leader in games, minutes played, field goals, field goal attempts, free throws, offensive rebounds. Offensive rebounds, Clyde Drexler, still number one in Blazers history. I love that. Uh, Steals, points, triple doubles, and win shares. So, yeah, iconic player uh, in Blazers history. And uh, I guess this is how one of these trades can go pretty well because I think things have kind of smoothed over with Clyde and and, and Portland. I don't think he really is too upset. When he says, hey, I want to go, and then you trade him to, you know, his hometown team and he wins a title, that's a good way to, uh, (laughs) you know, make sure that nobody's upset afterwards and everybody gets what they they wanted out of the trade. So, congratulations. So um, I have a TR Dunn fact. Oh, I love TR Dunn facts. Go ahead. I, I, I know that you do. So of all of the players who have played more than 950 games in NBA history, uh, TR Dunn has the second fewest points per game at 5.1 points per game in his career and also has the second fewest um uh, points per 36 minutes with 7.9 uh, points per 36 minutes. The only player with fewer points um, per uh, 36 minutes. Do you want to guess who that is? Oh, man. Okay. Mm. Is it Chris he, Dudley? It is not Chris Dudley. Oh. Uh, although um, Joe Klein is the player who <laughs> has um, the fewest points per game um overall. Like he has uh, 4.7, 4.8, something like that. But <laughs> um uh, per minute, he, he per minute he's only the uh, 18th worst. So um, it is a a, a defensive minded player, best known for his play in the 2000s. Oh, uh, Ben Wallace. There you go. Yeah, yes. yeah yep. there we go. Seven point zero. Um, and Tr Dunn is next with seven point nine. Uh, Caldwell Jones uh, nine point zero. Tree Rollins nine point four. And Michael Cage ten point zero. So. Was Tier Dunn like? Did he even like pass half court? Like, how do you not score like more points with those Denver teams? I know he was like a defensive guy, but did he just like never pass half court? Was he just like, you guys got it? I'm good. Like, I'll uh, I'll yeah. call back on defense. Like, don't worry uh, about me. Like, how do you just not like by accident score ten points a game? Uh, yeah, that is kind of crazy because he was yeah, like 140 I, a game. Like, what are you doing? I mean, he like, yeah. I mean, the la- <laughs> I mean, he was scoring like you know eight points a game for a while. Um and then, like his last four years, he's averaging like fewer than four minutes, four points per game, and playing for you know mostly full time. Um, so I don't know. I think those those dragged it down a bit when they 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 weren't quite as run and gun in the um, late eighties until you know they got Paul Westfall again. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, yeah, 
that is interesting. Yeah, I. Uh, it just feels like in those Doug Mo days, time. like right. Yeah, everybody, you know, everybody got theirs. Well, <laughs> except I, for well, TR. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, I mean, they had three guys averaging like twenty-five points per game. So you know, I mean, there were only so many points to go around. Even if you're scoring, you know, a lot of points, you know, when those three guys are taking the ball so much, there's not a lot of room for TR Dunn to you know get a shot. That's then, true, and yeah, Alex English and and and, and Dan Issel, they're not really interested in passing the ball to you very much either. Right. So yeah. that's why I do wonder. I, I'd love to watch one of those games and see if he even bothers to like go on the fast break or he's just like ah i'm not getting the ball anyway just you guys go yeah. like it's fine, Cause, uh, fine. yeah because he's, he's only taking like four shots so it's not like he's missing I mean, he's just not taking shots he's just not involved in the offense whatsoever but hey that's not why they needed him they had enough scores they needed somebody to play a little bit of defense so good for him yeah, yeah there you go Tell all right uh our next category is uh looking uh at uh after a player has made a trade request, not a demand, a request, uh, we're going to look at Jack Sigma, uh, who was traded by the Seattle Supersonics, uh, along with a second round draft pick that became Bob McCann and another 1989 second round draft pick that became Scott Hafner. On July 1st, 1986, he was traded to the Milwaukee Bucks for Alton Lister a 1970 or 1987 That'd be a first bad round. trade. That'd be a real right. bad trade. No, that would be, yeah. Give us no. a 1970 draft pick. Like, well, all right. Like, yeah. That's somebody from the 70s. Like, just give that's, me an old player if you want. Yeah. That's even worse than any of the Babcock <laughs> trades. Yeah. Um, 1987 first round draft pick that uh, was Mark Jackson. Yes, that Mark Jackson, you know, Nick's, uh, you know, bad announcer, you know, Mark Jackson. <laughs> bad, coach. Coach. <laughs> bad coach. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Weird Mark Jackson. Spy guy that spied on his yeah. coaches and team. And yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, by the way, Mark Jackson is 19th in um, points yeah. per 36 minutes for uh, players that criteria. So what a, what a um, boring ass player to watch too. I mean, the, the, before was, he yeah. was a coach, I hated watching Mark Jackson. Uh, stupid I mean, back downs. Get out of here. He at least had fun passes, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, and then a 1989 first round draft pick of Jeff Sanders. So, um, yeah, the Sonics made a whole lot of trades in that 87 draft. I mean, they obviously traded, um, you know, they, they traded the pick that was Scotty Pippen and all that good stuff. There was, there's a lot of mess of things. Yeah, they got old in colonies though. So, I mean, yeah, they, they did. Yeah, it worked out. Another interest. We'll get to, uh, another interesting, uh, you have an Olden Polonies fact? Not not an Olden oh. Polonies fact, but a, but a trade that stemmed after this trade. So we'll we'll, we'll save it for the end because it's good stuff. So other examples of um, the situation, obviously Clyde Drexler, there was a trade request there. As we talked about, Bob Lanier going to the Pistons, uh, or not, not from the Pistons uh, to the Bucks. Oscar Robertson also to the Bucks from the Royals. Derek Harper to the Knicks, you know, situations, um, situations like that, plenty of other examples, but those are a few of the ones that we're, they want to highlight here. And yes, uh, Sigma, you know, the last remaining player from the Sonics 1979 championship team, you know, the glory days with Gus Williams and Dennis Johnson, Lenny Wilkins as the coach, you know, they remain a, you know, uh, a strong, pretty solid contender, you know, in, into the early eighties, uh, but they lose Dennis Johnson. They don't get much out of Paul Westphal, who replaced him. He was a falling out between um, between Johnson and Lenny Wilkins' his coach. Gus Williams holds out for a year. You know, the Lakers obviously come on strong in the West. And, you know, the Sonics, you know, they, despite being a young team when they won the championship, you know, kind of lost their window there. And then the prior two seasons before um, Sigma asked for trade, 
they had been 31 and 51. Uh, yeah, at that point, he, was, he had been a seven-time All-Star. He had four years left on his contract, estimated to be worth $1.65 million a year. Um, probably a little bit more than he was worth on the court, but obviously he was really important uh, in, in Sonic's history. And, you know, they, they would talk about how, like, uh, you know, Bob Whitson, who was the team president of Sonics, basically said, like, yeah, we would never have wanted, you know, we never would have felt comfortable trading for him because of how much he meant to the franchise if he hadn't ever had um, the request. So, um, yeah, and so but two months before the trade, he had asked to be traded, saying he wanted to play on a team with a chance to win an NBA championship. And then, you know, so they end up getting Alton Lister. Alton Lister had, had spent five years with the Bucks. He was older than I realized. He was uh, 27 at the time. Um, he would last for three years on the Sonics. And ironically, he's probably most famous for, for being on the other end of a ferocious dunk from Sonic Sean Kemp. Um, That's the point dunk, and, right? Yes. The, oh, yeah, the point yeah, dunk. Yeah, the yes. point dunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and, oh, actually, I put it here in the notes. I thought I was going to say it for the end, but we're going to reveal it now. So, um Lister would end up being traded to the Warriors in the summer of 1989 for what would become the number two pick in 1990, Gary, Gary Payton. Look at so, that. Alden Lister, a very important figure in, in Sonic's history, both for getting yeah. his ass dunked on by Sean Kemp, for yeah. becoming Gary Payton, and, and for spending a few years with the Sonics. So good for him. Right. And, and Gary Payton, you know, if the uh, if the Warriors had had that pick, then Gary Payton would have played in Oakland, where he's from. So um, all, all kinds of irony there. Um so yeah, so uh, the uh, the Sonics, uh, you know, they they actually ended up doing okay here. You know, they they um, you know they were able to you know revamp. Um, they actually improved by eight wins to thirty nine and forty three. Added Dale Ellis in the offseason as well, and he uh, went from you know he he um, he became a star in Seattle. They made a surprising run to the Western Conference Finals, and they'd still. You know, they'd remain like a you know in the low 40s when solid but unspectacular into the early 90s. Eventually, they'd catch fire with Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. So, you know, they were all right here. Um, I, I want to get into a uh, article um, from the November 3rd, 1986 Sports Illustrated called "A Buck for a Change." It's by Bruce Newman, uh, of course, about you know Sigma being on the Bucks. Uh, Don Nelson, you know, describes Sigma. He was then the Milwaukee coach. Described him as not a dominating center, but we says, "Hey, we feel like we've really improved ourselves. That this move puts us in a position to win it all." So, you know, feeling like, okay, now you know we've got um, a center. You know, we, we we've got a true center. We've got somebody who can you know compete with the other big you know players, the Kareem's, you know, the Twin Towers in Houston, etc. Um, you know, there's a and here like. It refers to how four years ago the Sonics' then general manager he he was asked whether he would consider trading Sigma for Moses Malone, and then the quote was, "This is Zoli Volchak, who was the uh, the GM then for the Sonics. I wouldn't trade Jack Sigma for the resurrection of Marilyn Monroe in my bedroom." Which um, maybe a little strong, but you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, hey. because yeah, Moses Malone, maybe you you know you'd want him, but. And then Bob Whitson also said, hey, I mean, I would say I'd rather Marilyn Monroe, Moses Malone, and Moses Malone than Jack Sigma. Right. But, you know, yeah, whatever. It would be good. Yeah. I mean, Sigma, I like Sigma too. Good player. But, yeah. I, you know, Marilyn hey, Monroe sure and, Mel- and Moses. Moses could really do some work. And, yeah. yeah I'm sure Marilyn Monroe could do some good work in the yeah. past. So, know? I don't yeah. know. I would have probably taken yeah. either. But, hey, you know what? He, right. took, hey. he, 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 he stuck by his man, Jack Sigma. Yeah. <laughs> Jack Sigma. Hey. Yeah. You know? 
and Bob Witza said, hey, uh, you know, Jacksec was bigger than the Space Needle. If we wanted to trade. <laughs> That's not yeah, true. I've seen the Space Needle. It's very large. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, perhaps figuratively. Oh, but, okay, uh, okay. Not yeah. Okay, got and, it. And there was, there was some tension between Sigma and Lenny Wilkins, uh, who at this point was not the coach, but still the GM. Basically saying, hey, you know, any player making the kind of money that Sigma was should be loyal to the team, win or lose. Um, Sigma apparently was a, um, you know, part of a group of veterans who basically went to the owner and uh, asked, uh, you discuss the team's problem. And then Wilkins ended up being just, you know, the general manager after that. Um, so, you know, it, there was um, some interesting things there. And this was out of the Milwaukee playbook. Um, they had, you know, traded for Bob Lanier in 1980, you know, similar situation, you know, with the Pistons uh, where, you know, he'd been the, the top guy for a struggling team. Uh, they'd also gotten Dave Cowens, who made a comeback uh, after retiring. Um, Lanier, it went well. Cowens, he ended up get, getting hurt in the preseason, never really played that well for the Bucks. Um, and um, also very interestingly is the um, – this, the uh, Bucks actually did have a chance to draft um, Sigma in the nineteen seventy seven draft. They they had uh, two of the first three choices in the um, draft. They got they, they picked Kent Benson first and Marcus Johnson third, and then they had I think the seventh pick or you know like a top you know sixth or seventh pick there, and they didn't take Sigma. And Sigma was actually kind of a surprise pick at at, at number eight overall. Um, you know, he played for a, a small college and wasn't that well known. Uh, and then Don Nelson said that day, I think Seattle made a mistake. We might have picked Sigma in the second round if we had used up all 22 choices in the first round. So, um, which is a pretty bold thing to say. That is um, very bold and, to say. The day of, too. Yeah, you know, right, just exactly like some, right. Yeah, the day the, of the draft, right. So yeah. puffy chested there. Wow, Don Nelson. Yeah. Jeez. And then Nelson would say uh, later, I was young and dumb. Hell, I hadn't even seen him play. So, oh, geez. Um, <laughs> God. Yeah. Well, he drafted Kent Benson number one. So what do you know? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Marcus Johnson, um, good, good good pick there, though. Good pick. Yeah, three, right. That, that worked out pretty well. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for the Bucks, adding Sigma didn't really bear the, a lot of fruit. Uh, he averaged his lowest p- points per game total, 12.7 since his rookie season. The Bucks were seven games worse than they had been the prior season. They won only 50 games. They did take the Celtics, um, who ended up making the finals, to seven games in the second round. But this was really the last season that they were any kind of true finals contender. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Nelson ended up leaving after the season. They went to Del Harris, and the Bucks were basically, you know, a, a good team, but you know, kind of mid to high 40s win team for the rest of Sigma's career. No, no longer really um, a finals contender. So, so Sigma played well. You know, they got good years out of him, but they definitely. You know, with you know, the rest of the team aging, and um, you know, just kind of the um, you know time had sort of passed, and they were unfortunately unable to um, break through. Yeah, the, the window had, had definitely closed on on that Bucks uh, franchise title hope, and and that kind of gets us into our next one here, which is time for a new era. Jason Kidd being traded from the New Jersey Nets, uh, February nineteenth, two thousand eight, is when the trade happens. Uh, there's a lot of names here, so I will try to quickly go over them. It's a very right. confusing trade in a lot of ways, but uh, anyway, the New Jersey Nets trade uh, Jason Kidd, Malik Allen, and Antoine Wright to the Dallas Mavericks for Maurice Ager, Desagna Jop, Devin Harris, Trenton Hassel, Keith Van Horn, a 2008 first round pick ended up being Ryan Anderson, and a 2010 first round pick would ended up being Jordan Crawford. So. Uh, some other examples of, of a trade like this, 
uh, Kevin Garnett being traded from the you know the Timberwolves to the Celtics, uh, Russell Westbrook being traded to the Rockets, uh, Steve Nash to the Lakers, Marcus and Mike Conley you know getting moved from the you know Memphis, uh, Chris Mullen to the Pacers, Paul Pierce to the Nets, Nate Thurman to the Bulls, like you know guys that are still very good, but it's just kind of time for them to move on from their current franchise. Their current franchise is kind of going in a different direction or whatever, and that's that's what happens here with Jason Kidd. So. A little bit of background on Jason Kidd. He obviously established himself uh, as a star over the first few years of his career, although a troubled one for, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, his tenure in Dallas ends very poorly with uh, injuries, plus everybody on the team hating one another, which did not go very well for uh, team success. Uh, he is then traded to the Suns with Tony Dumas uh, for Michael Finley, A.C. Green, and Sam Cassell. Uh, the Suns improved greatly with Kidd, uh, as well as their early small ball lineup. They, they were a really revolutionary team at this time, too, with three-pointers. Uh, playing very small ball stuff with Jason Kidd, Kevin Johnson, Rex Chapman, uh, and Steve Nash all on the same team, plus Antonio McDice. It's a very successful team uh, for uh, Phoenix, but uh, ends up obviously Antonio McDice uh, short-lived uh, run there. But uh, move on to uh, go back to Denver and and you know the the, the kind of the, the idea of having Jason Kidd, Kevin Johnson, Rex Chapman, and Steve Nash all kind of playing at the same time didn't didn't really you know outside of that one year didn't really bear uh, the fruit that a lot of people thought it would. Uh, by 1999, Kidd really ascends into the upper echelon of point guards in the league. Uh, he wins his uh, first ever assist title. Uh, he leads the NBA with seven triple doubles. Back when triple doubles were really interesting and cool and different and unique, and not you know something that Russell Westbrook does while he's being bad and playing for bad teams. Uh, the rest of the league, just to let you know, had only 11 in that entire year that he has seven. So a, a pretty important thing there. Uh, he also has a career high in points, rebounds, and steals, uh, and ranked top 50 in 10 different stats. Uh, in 1999 as well. Uh, the next season, the Suns decide, okay, we got Jason Kidd. He's a star. We need to put him with another star. And they acquire Penny Hardaway from the Orlando Magic. And on paper, this team seems destined for big things. They get the very terrible nickname, and I need your, your ruling here, Jason, of, quote, Backcourt 2000. What do you think of that is Backcourt all, 2000? <laughs> that's almost as good as Legion of Doom 2000. Yes. Oh, yeah. LOD 2000 went very, very well. And uh, yeah, well, they, right. this went about the same, I would say, about, yeah, about right. equally as well. The, the LOD 2000 yeah. may have been a little bit better because they had Sunny and uh, no microfracture surgeries. But uh, right. uh, they did have, you know, Hawk being drunk and falling off a Titan Tron or whatever. So I guess thing, I guess yeah. things went. But, yeah, yeah, if you weren't alive in this period, everything was X2000. And this right. started in like 1997. People just started calling everything something 2000. So it was only natural right. that this dumb pairing would be called Backcourt 2000. And uh, I don't guess I don't have to tell you how Backcourt 2000 goes, uh, but it doesn't go very well. June 11th uh, or June 20, uh, 2001, uh, Suns decide to go in a different direction and they trade Jason Kidd to the New Jersey Nets. Uh, here's a quote from Brian Colangelo the day of the trade from ESPN.com. He says, quote, this was a basketball judgment call regarding where we were as a franchise, where we're going and what our preference was going forward. I hope and pray that it's a deal that both teams can look back on and say this was a good deal for our team. Well. Uh, Rod Thorne, the Nets president, says Jason is the best rebounding point guard in the league. He's all NBA in defense, and we really need help on defense. On the whole, I think we helped our team dramatically. Okay, Rod Thorne, yeah. correct. <laughs> Very glad you sure. eh. eh, Not so much, I would say. Uh, anyway, uh, it's a big makeover for the Suns. They've been built around Kid for, for years and years and years, but the, the franchise had experienced sagging attendance in recent years, and Kid's off-the-court problems as well. 
uh, added to possibly the trade happening. If, if you don't remember at this time, he I, I don't I forget if he was arrested or charged. Or I forget the exact. I, he I, was charged. Yeah. He was okay. Yeah. So he was charged with some domestic abuse and some other things like that. And it just he was kind of a surly guy in general, as Jason Kidd always would kind of be. So you had domestic abuse. You had him being kind of surly. You had some stuff a little bit here and there. And uh, Colangelo would say it's a general malaise on the part of our fans. So. Uh, they decided to go in a different direction here. Uh, he says this, tra- this trade is necessary to bring some much-needed excitement uh, and personality to the team. Uh, and uh, Brian Colangelo says here, which I think is a very vivid quote here, he says, there were a lot of games I didn't enjoy myself, so how could I expect the fans to enjoy them? So, wow. <laughs> That's a, yeah. a pretty interesting case there. So uh, he decides, hey, you know what? Enough of this Jason Kidd. Let's bring in Stefan Marbury. Well, the Suns <laughs> stink. And uh, he only lasts two and a half years there, and then he's traded to the Knicks. So uh doesn't go very well. He's actually packaged with Anthony Hardaway as well, with Penny Hardaway. I forget that uh, yeah. it was Penny Hardaway and Stefan Marbury to the Knicks for Howard Isley, Antonio McDyess, Charlie Ward, and a bunch of other crap, which eventually, somehow, believe it or not, <laughs> this trade in 2004 ended up involving a 2010 first-round pick, which ended up becoming Gordon Hayward. So that's, yeah. uh, what a weird connection of, of, of dating Penny Hardaway to, to Gordon Hayward through this one trade. Uh, here, but uh, incredible stuff there. But uh, anyway, Jason Kidd and the Nets end up being a perfect fit. Uh, Kidd joins the young core uh, of Kenny Martin, Richard Jefferson, Kerry Kittles, Keith Van Horn. Uh, team improves by 26 wins uh, in their first season. And with their new point guard, uh, they get their first first 50-win season in franchise history. I had to yeah. double-check that to make sure, and it's like, man. <laughs> like, that's that's NBA. They, they won more than 50 in the ABA, though. I right, correct, 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 correct. Yeah, but obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, NBA, it's like, right. uh, yeah, well. Pretty bad franchise for a lot of years. But anyway, Jason Kidd makes yeah. it all right for this period briefly. Uh, yeah. 51 season, they, uh, uh, Kidd makes the All-NBA first team. He finished the second uh, in MVP to Tim Duncan. A lot of people upset about that. because, And I remember this argument at the time because Tim Duncan is in his peak. Like People say he's boring. You know, period. But like, yeah, it's a tough. It's tough to pick against Tim Duncan in that year, especially going back now with the benefit of hindsight and looking at numbers. It's like, yeah, Tim Duncan's clearly the MVP here. But I remember a lot of hand wringing about it being Jason Kidd, and and it makes sense because he was the narrative of that year. I mean, he improves that team by twenty six wins. They're like right. immediately awesome. He's dynamic. He's throwing alley oops. Kenny Martin's dunking all over the place. Richard Jefferson's doing cool stuff. Like, it's a really really fun team at this time. Like, there's always this idea that the Nets was, were kind of boring and 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 dull, and the Eastern Conference was bad, and and those you know some parts true but like Jason Kidd really reinvigorated this team and, and and really made them very fun so I get why like narratively you might want to go with Jason Kidd as the MVP but I think Tim Duncan historically would be the better pick uh, for yes I, I'm MVP. sorry I, I need to interrupt for a moment um so outside of the 2002 season the NBA Nets have never had a 50 win season what <laughs> they've Still? they've had they've had four 49 win seasons oh uh, now, now this season is obviously going to be shortened uh, 72 games. They're 37 and 17. They have a 685 winning percentage, which is their second best winning percentage outside of the 75 season. So um, let's see, they would have to, they'd have to lose 22 games to, so if they finish 13 and five, they would have, um, they would win 50. Okay. Uh, I think they can do so, it. So, so winning percent, well, yeah, winning percentage wise, they would be, if it were a full season, they would be above the 50 threshold. But um, anyway, so yeah, that's, that's a weird thing. Yeah, um, you would have thought like that w- one of those like KG Pierce teams would have just like fell backwards in a 50 they, season, right? Right. Like, they, they won 49 that year. Man. Yeah. That was uh, 2013. Yeah. That they're, they're, yeah, with PJ Kilsmer as the coach. That's of right. Course. Uh, that was <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> full circle. Uh, 
Yeah, Falls Oracle, yeah. Okay, you, anyway. you can't avoid PJ Carlissimo. But anyway, sure. uh, yeah. Kid leaves uh, New Jersey to their first ever uh, NBA Finals appearance uh, where they meet the juggernaut Shaq and Kobe Lakers, uh, who absolutely destroyed them in four games without any real attempt. <laughs> believe it or not, Jason McCulloch and Aaron Williams could not stop uh, peak Shaquille O'Neal, who just dunked all over them. And, and it didn't matter if what Jason Kidd or Kenny Martin or any of those guys were doing. It was going to be the Lakers, and they were going to win this. So uh, the following season, New Jersey gets back in the finals, this time in a pretty competitive series, actually an interestingly competitive series uh, with the San Antonio Spurs. Like, yeah, that, a lot of people kind of forget because people remember that four-game sweep, just the utter destruction of the Lakers uh, the prior year. Like, the Nets, they, they they had a real chance of maybe making this a series. Obviously, San Antonio wins it. They win a title in, in, in David Robinson's final season, and uh, Tim Duncan's great that year. Everybody's great that year, so it just you know, they were up against another juggernaut in a lot of ways, but they, they made it competitive uh, and they made it a, a, a pretty good series. Uh, so in the offseason, actually, it's, it's very, very interesting. I think we talked about this a little bit when we talked about David Robinson a few uh, episodes ago, uh, a few months ago, I should say. Uh, there was speculation that Jason Kidd would be joining the Spurs in this offseason, replacing the Spurs young right. point guard, Tony Parker, because Tony Parker, they weren't quite sure what they had in this guy. They weren't quite sure if he was going to work. And Jason Kidd said, hey, I'd like to come there. They had the cap space. Everything made it, it worked out perfectly for Jason Kidd to go to the Spurs. Join. Can you imagine the hand wringing if Jason Kidd oh, went to the man. defending champions? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, but uh, ended up not happening. Kidd stays with the Nets on a six year, ninety nine million dollar deal. You can't make it a hundred. <laughs> you can't go around a hundred. Ninety nine. Ninety nine point eight million. Like, what are we doing? Come on. Make it a hundred dollars. But anyway. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, though, this is probably the high point for Kidd and the Nets. Uh, they'd be a middling team over the next few years. Kid has uh, numerous injuries. He ends up going through microfracture surgery, uh, which almost never worked ever. And I don't know how it ever was thought of as being a good idea. But <laughs> we've talked about that before. I don't understand how, yeah. hey, what if we just drill multiple holes into your knee? That'll make your knee better, right? Like, I don't know. I right. guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Sure. Okay. Didn't work for anybody. But hey, you know what? <laughs> Maybe it'll work for me. So uh, it didn't. And now they don't do it anymore because it was bad. Uh, anyway, the team acquires uh, Vince Carter from the Raptors. Uh, we, you mentioned that a little bit earlier to try and get things going again. And, and they were a constant in the Eastern Conference playoffs, but they never got to the high again. They never quite got to that level, like you said, of, of, of making the NBA finals or winning 50 games or doing any of that sort of stuff. Uh, there are some some notable things that happened, though. And, you know, April 7, 2007, uh, Kid and Carter become the the first teammates to record triple doubles in the same game uh, since Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen did it for the 89 Bulls. Uh, in 2007 as well, Kidd joins Wilt Chamberlain and Magic Johnson as the only players in NBA history uh, to average a triple-double in multiple playoff series. Uh, becomes only the second player in NBA history to average a triple-double for an entire postseason. Uh, in 2008, uh, he becomes the third player in history to get a triple-double in three straight games. But again, the bloom is really off the rose in a lot of ways here for, for Kidd and, and the Nets. Uh, he's rumored to be a part of a deal uh, sending him to the Lakers. Uh, the Lakers do not want to give up Andrew Bynum, a, a pretty constant uh, through many of these uh, rumored trades the Lakers were in for, for years and years and years. They just never wanted to give up Andrew Bynum. But finally, on February 19th, they find a partner here with Kidd being traded to the Dallas Mavericks, ending his run in New Jersey. Uh, and Jason Kidd, to this day, is still the Nets franchise leader in three-point field goals. He will probably lose that very soon, depending on how many how long J- James Harden plays uh, for the team. Uh, he's also the franchise leader in assists, steals, triple doubles, assists per game, uh, and value over replacement player. He is second in win shares, only to Buck Williams, and fifth in points, which I don't know if this says more about Kidd or, or, or more about the Nets franchise, given that Kidd wasn't really uh, known for being a great scorer. But uh, he's fifth in Nets franchise history in points. Brooke Lopez is uh, currently number one but again depending on how long Kevin Durant and James Harden and, and Kyrie Irving play a lot of those uh a lot of those stats are probably gonna get destroyed and and, and blown up here pretty quick so yeah cherish yeah. it now Jason because I don't know how long a lot of those are gonna <laughs> I, last, will, so, yeah. I I will deeply cherish it Rich thank you for uh encouraging me to do that because uh, I'm glad to yeah um 
Yeah, that that's crazy. And, and of course, you know, obviously, you know, kid goes to, to the Mavericks. And a lot of people kind of thought like, you know, like kids past his prime. Oh, I hated it. I was, really a, I was a huge Mavericks fan at that time. Me and my right. buddy were yeah. so pissed. We're like, what? What are they doing? Yeah. Jason Kidd, that's not going to yeah. work. Like, why did they? Why? Trading, what are they? trading future star Devin Harris? What are you doing? Right. You know? Exactly. I loved Devin yeah. Harris at the right. time. I was so pissed. Right. Yeah. I wish I and, saved. I wish I saved those text messages. I mean, me and my, me and my friend were like inconsolable at the time. We're like, what are they doing? <laughs> Maurice yes. Hager. Like, come on. There's so much good yeah. talent going away for Jason, for old ass Jason Kidd. So, yeah, well, whatever. Yeah, well, of course, they'd end up, uh, you know, winning the championship with Kid. you know, in a, you know, less of a role player now, but but a key player. Well, I didn't and, think he was uh, going to start shooting three-pointers and making them every time. <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Speaking of uh, making uh, three-pointers all the time for the Dallas Mavericks, uh, Peja Stojakovic uh, is our next category uh, of uh, taking a risk and trying to upgrade so um the the trade was paya being traded by the kings to the pacers this is january 25th 2006 for meta world peace who's this still then known as ron artest so you know this is sort of a different category of trade here but it's you basically getting rid of a longtime star or fan favorite in favor of a greater talent but who maybe could create a volatile situation. So to a degree, yeah, I would say this is kind of similar to the recent Kawhi Leonard to for DeMar DeRozan trade, although that oh, sure. worked out much, yeah. much, much better for the Raptors than this did for the Kings. I would um, say, yeah, I would say, but no, that, I mean, a lot of people forget though, when that trade went down, it was like Kawhi was in the midst of his like weird season with the Spurs, yeah. kind of sat out, kind of didn't. Right. And, yeah. and DeMar was yeah. like that franchise. And it was like, oh man, Kyle Lowry can't be happy about this. That's his best right. friend. That's a big, so yeah, that, it all worked out and people will kind of forget. But at the time there was a lot of like, Ooh, I don't know. Is this going to work? Like, what do you guys doing here that that's really weird so i yeah i like that that's a really good comp yeah thank you um so yeah i mean our test was coming off you know the the, the previous year had been the the malice in the palace you know he'd been suspended for most of the season um you know uh there were tensions with him and pacers management larry bird being the team president um and you know they had been shipped trying to ship him for a while and finally they you know, there, this trade had been rumored for a while. Our test has sort of seemed to sort of bulk with going to Sacramento, but he finally agreed and they um, finally were able to make the deal. Um, the Kings co-owner, Gavin Maloof, said, hey, we're gamblers, so we'll take a chance on him. We want to look forward. Otherwise, we wouldn't have made this happen. Um, those guys suck he, so much. <laughs> you remember those guys? <laughs> God, they were just the douchiest dudes. They just sat yeah. courtside in their douchey little suits. Oh my God, I hated the Maloofs. I love the Kings, but then they would show their owners, and I was like, man, right. maybe like, uh, maybe yeah. maybe Kobe and Shaq should beat these guys. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Just the we're gamblers. Oh yeah, they were just the oh the so, bloviest bros, man. So God. At the time, sorry, sorry, you to know, no, no, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the the insight, um, which is very, <laughs> very good. So, you know, he had, you know, and, and, and Sarkovich had been with the um, Kings, you know, since 1998. He was a rookie at, at age 21. He had become the the team's longest tenured player. Uh, he was um, expected to become a free agent over the summer. He had an option on his last year. And Sacramento, they had traded away, you know, Chris Webber, Bobby Jackson, and Doug Christie over the past um, 
you know, uh, 13 months. So the, the, you know, they were overhauling things, you know, they had had four seasons of 55 plus wins from 01 to 04, you know, came really, really close to making the finals, but lost to the Lakers in 02, you know, with the, that fantastic team and, and had, a, had a great run. They were still, you know, a, a pretty good team. They, they'd won 50 games the prior season. They were technically in last place, but they were in their, in their division, but they were like, you know, they entered making the playoffs and winning 44 games during the season. So it wasn't like they were a bad team yet. <laughs> that would come soon, but they weren't a bad team yet. So um, Mike Bibby's quote of about, um, our test. I know he might put us over the hump that we need the way he plays. He plays good defense. He can score too. Maybe that can pick up the intensity and everybody else. So a couple of things you might be asking is, okay, why are you talking about Stojakovic? Why aren't you talking about say Chris Webber? Um, well, one Chris Webber only played 377 games with the Kings. So he didn't quite fit our criteria. We, we did a minimum of 500 games with the franchise here. Uh, and also, you know, he was kind of a shell of himself after his injuries. So uh, he wasn't really quite the same player. And also Stojakovic, more important to the Kings' success than you might than you might remember. For so 2001 to 04, you know, during that that glory period for the franchise, he led the Kings in win shares and value of replacement. He was second to Weber in box score plus minus and PER, um, averaging 21.3 points per game on 5.99 true shooting percentage. So really incredibly efficient scorer, especially for the era. Um, and he was actually all NBA second team in 2004 and helped lead the team to the, the Kings 55 wins. That was the season in which Weber only played uh, 23 games for right. the Kings. So, so uh, you know, really did, did lead, um, you know, the, the vestiges of that team, uh, you know, to, to really good success. And, you know, they um, ended up losing into the second round of the Timberwolves who had won like 59 games that year. And I mean, the, the West was just stacked during those years in which the Kings were great. I mean, obviously the Lakers won those three championships in a row, but you just had like, you know, four or five incredible teams after, you know, um, during that time. I mean, it was, it was just a bloodbath there. So um, you, you, you certainly one of the best uh, teams to never win championship. Um, and he, I, I would say next to Weber, he was the second most important player, um, you know, of that era for them. No, I, I, I think I, I definitely like what you're saying there. I mean, the Chris Webber stuff is obviously well known because, you know, when he comes and kind of solidifies that team and, and he's known as kind of the, the top dog of that team. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that, that Peja was a lot more important than people remember. And I think a lot of people would be surprised if they go and look, you know, look at his numbers and look at his stats and look at, look at what he was doing on a team that also had Chris Webber and had all the talent that we're saying. I mean, he was a super dynamic player. And unfortunately, as we're going to talk about here, the last half of his career kind of falls off a cliff and he just become, becomes, you know, kind of a role player for the last few years. But it, it really does undermine how important and how good he was uh, for the Kings o- o- over the course of these few seasons. So so I'm right with you. And, and yeah, he's like a Kings draft pick. He goes back all the way to 1996, the, the very famous 1996 uh, NBA draft. Obviously, has plays a few years, you, you know, outside of the NBA before finally coming over. But no, I I, I, I think that's definitely defensible that, that he was a lot bigger deal than I think a lot of people give him credit for. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously they had Bibby. They had... Um, you know, Divach, they, they had Bobby Jackson. I mean, they, they, they had a good, you know, a, a deep cast of really good players. But yeah, I think, you know, of the, um, in terms of the key players next to Weber, I think it was, I'm sorry, Virginia, and I think it was close between them. I, I mean, Weber, I think, was, was definitely the number one player, but it was, um, but so which was a strong number two. But um, yeah, so he, you know, Stoyakovich for the Pacers, you know, averages almost 20 points per game in 40 games. Ends up missing four of the Pacers' six playoff games against the Nets that year uh, with a, a knee injury, the uh, the Jason Kidd, uh, Vince Carter uh, Nets. 
then he opts out of the final year of his contract to become a free agent, ends up signing with uh, the uh, the Hornets uh, after his agent had said he wanted to finish his career in Indiana. Apparently, Indiana wasn't uh, that exciting. So, and I should say it's the New Orleans Hornets, now the Pelicans, because that's not confusing. No, at no, no, no. As, we're, as no. we'll talk about <laughs> very shortly, yeah, not confusing at all. And uh, yeah, when you when you're when you're in the glitz and glamour of Sacramento, yeah, the the you know the cow town of, uh, of Indianapolis is not enough to uh, to excite right. uh, one page of Stoyakovich, who needed a little no. bit more juice that you know places like Sacramento can offer you. So, five years, sixty four million dollar deal with them. Uh, you know, of course, joining Chris Paul, joining you know a, a, an, an exciting team that um, yeah, I think would actually make a deep playoff run the next year or two. Unfortunately, Sakovich really struggles with injuries for the Hornets, and as you said, just kind of settles into being a role player there. Um, then he in the 2011 season traded to the Raptors. We played exactly two games. And then would uh, be released and, and get to sign with the Mavericks in time for their championship run and would uh, make a, a, approximately a billion threes against the uh, Lakers in their uh, sweep of the uh, Lakers in quite a uh, glorious uh, fashion. So he get, gets gets a ring at the end of his career along with a lot of uh, guys for the uh, Mavericks and certainly kind of has a fun end there. Meanwhile, 2006 Kings. Um they, of course, led by our test, Mike Bibby, kind of the last holdover from the old era. Also, Bonzi Wells. It's the last time the franchise made the playoffs. It's been uh, 15 years since they uh, made the playoffs. If they don't make it this year, they uh, are we tie the record with the uh, Clippers. So we'll see if that uh, ends up happening. But, yeah, our test actually lasted two and a half years with the, with the Kings. You know, played pretty well. Um Ended up being traded to Houston for in, in a multiplayer deal that which the, their main thing they got back was a first round pick that turned into Omri Caspi. Uh, also a trade that involved included former King Bobby Jackson going back to the uh, Kings. So, um, uh, yeah. So uh, you know, and then of course you know he'd be one year with Houston before he'd go to the Lakers and then kind of you know spent his uh, legend there with the Lakers as kind of more of a you know defensive role player type guy, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it made sense, you know, for the Kings to do that. I mean, I think it was worth it, worth a gamble. I mean, it didn't really work out, uh, you know, fantastically or anything, but, um, you know, given where they were, um, I think, you know, it made sense to gamble on a, someone of our test talent. And it, I, yeah, I think it, they didn't have a whole lot of team success, but from a, you know, perspective of our test, like, you know, he, he played well and didn't really get into, you know, any significant trouble during that time as well. So, right, right. And I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people forget how great our test was before that sure. Alice, like, and especially that year, yeah. that year that he came back, like he had been an all-star the year prior. He comes that year, you know, over the course of however many, I think five or seven games, I forget five, six, seven, somewhere around that range. I believe it is. It's definitely under 10 games. He's like having averaging career highs around everything. And he's just like the Indiana Pacers are well-oiled machine. They, they look like a legit team that could probably make a run uh, at the NBA finals and maybe even at a championship. And then obviously the malice happens and, and it all kind of falls apart. But yeah, he was a really, really good player at that time. So you, you can definitely justify the trade and say, Hey, look, you know, he just needed to change the scenery. He just needed to come to Sacramento. Uh, he just needed to kind of get away from, from everything that was in Indiana and everything that happened there uh, and come so yeah totally justified trade and obviously it, it doesn't work out perfectly but you know I, I i like the idea to try to take a few more swings at, at this core uh, especially with a mike bibby and see what you can do with it and uh, obviously it ended up not working but it i don't it wouldn't have worked to pay to stay there for two more years either like you know i i, I think that was kind of the writing was on the wall for that team and that franchise uh, at, at that point so i don't mind the trade not a, not a bad move there but uh let's move on to our final one here saying goodbye to a colt favorite Muggsy Bogues. So yeah, Muggsy may be, you know, the least impactful on the court player 
uh, that we're going to talk about here. But I, I think I'm going to be able to sell it over the next 15 minutes. I think I'm going right. to be able to sell it uh, because I think he's more impactful than a lot of people think on the court. Uh, of course, a uh, you know not the traditional on the court star, but a really big star in terms of the marketing of a young franchise, a franchise that became one of the most top you know popular franchises in the NBA, a player that was synonymous with 90s basketball. I think many people to this day still remember Muggsy Bogues. They remember the Charlotte Hornets. They remember him on that jersey. Like, very iconic thing here. So I do say, you know, and, and definitely Colt favorite, which we're going to talk about uh, here in a bit. And, and some other examples, like Dan Marley, you know, getting traded from the uh, from the Suns. Uh, a pretty notable one as well. Just kind of a, a Colt favorite that still probably has something to offer, like, in, in terms of marketing and, and, and you know, off-the-court stuff that, that is sent away. But uh, November 7th, 1997, he was traded by the Charlotte Hornets with Tony Delk uh, to the Golden State Warriors for B.J. Armstrong. So uh, Bokes' uh, journey in the NBA uh, actually starts in the USBL, the minor league uh, USBL, uh, with the Rhode Island goals. And, and like in the NBA, Bokes becomes an immediate fan favorite. Uh, the goals lead the league in attendance uh, during his one year with the team, and he plays very, very well with that team. Uh, 1987 NBA draft, Bogues is drafted 12th overall by the Washington Bullets. Um, and at the time of his debut, interestingly enough, so obviously Muggsy Bogues, you're aware, he is short. That's why people, a lot of reasons why people likes him, because <laughs> he is very, very short, but he is able to do a lot of really cool stuff. At the time of his debut, he is 16.5 inches shorter than the average NBA player. I mean, that is a pretty astronomical uh, difference there. More so, though, he is 28 inches shorter than his teammate, the 7-7 Minute Bowl. And this would lead to, of course, many, many, many magazine covers showing the small guy, Muggsy Bogues, and the very tall guy, Minute Bowl. But, uh... Unfortunately, it doesn't go out, go as well for uh, the Muggsy Bogues in uh, Washington. Things just don't go well with the Bullets. They don't really play him all that much. He's just kind of like a funny guy that comes out and does some stuff every so often, but not necessarily a guy that they really think they can build the future around. Uh, so he is left unprotected in the 1988 NBA expansion draft, uh, and he's picked up by the brand-new Charlotte Hornets franchise. Uh, initially, uh, mostly a bench player for the Hornets, but he ends up emerging as a starter, and I would say a damn good player in franchise history. So in 1989 to 1995, he finishes top 10 in the league in assists and only once finished worse than fourth. I, I don't know if you would have said, hey, did Muggsy, would Muggsy Bogues have finished top 10 in assists for the course of like, you know, five or six years? I don't know if I would say yes. Like, he didn't strike me as that, but he did. He absolutely, he was in that mix there. I uh, was in the, you know, the top five for a lot of those years as well. Yeah. Uh, more than that, though, you know, him, Alonzo Mourning, Larry Johnson, the Teal, the Purple. I mean, that turned the Hornets franchise into one of the NBA's most popular, just a merchandise dynamo. Hornets starter jackets. Everybody had one. It just He was an incredible, I mean, just an incredible presence. Like, people knew about him. He was marketable. He was short, but he was able to do incredible stuff. They marketed him great to kids. That franchise was, I mean, everything was firing on all cylinders for the Charlotte franchise. Uh, 1994, Bogues averages a double-double. He finishes second in assists per game uh, that year as well. Uh, in 1995, he uh, averaged a career-high 10.8 points per game. Unfortunately, though, he has a knee injury in that season, and that begins to really spell the end of his run as a solid NBA player, and unfortunately, his run with the Hornets. So in 1997, things get really dirty between the Hornets and Bogues. Uh, then Hornets coach Dave Cowens, who you mentioned a little bit earlier as well, uh, basically suggests or implies or, or, or begs or whatever you want to say uh, Bugsy Bogues to retire due to his knee injuries. Uh, Bugsy Bogues decides, I don't really want to do that. Uh, in August... Hornets owner George Shin, who was a very good guy, Jason, a really likable really guy. guy that definitely did not cause this franchise to have to move and go away for a bunch of years because he was such a uh, great owner, uh, George right. Shin. He assured fans that, uh, no, 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 do not worry. Muggsy Bogues is going to remain with the team forever. Two months yeah. later, he's traded. So <laughs> it's perfect. You know, in addition to the many other things that George Shin does, he 
bold face lies to the, the fans and says, no, 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 we're not going to trade Muggsy Bogues. Are you kidding? No way. And then trades him. So uh, at the time, he's the franchise leader in steals and assists, which we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit here. Uh, as a bitter pill to solo for Bogues, the fans, and the last remaining Hornets player, uh, Del Curry. Del Curry has a, 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 a quote here. He says, I don't, I don't think he would have wanted it to end this way. I don't know how I feel. That was the one guy George Shin said would be a Hornet forever. So it, it hurt Del Curry. It hurt fans. And it hurt Muggsy Bogues as well. We'll talk about that in, in a bit. But uh, to this day, Muggsy Bogues still the Hornets' all-time leader in assists and steals. Second in games, second in minutes, and third in win shares as well. So I I don't know that I would have assumed that even today in 2021 that, that he would still be the all-time leader in assists and steals and games and minutes and all that sort of stuff be in the top five. But he is. So that that's where I can really sell this. That, like, you know, whatever you want to say about Muggs, I mean, he was a big deal to that franchise. And he lasted beyond Mourning, beyond Johnson, beyond all those guys. Really beyond, you know, the last guy was Del Curry of, of that original Hornets. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I was a little more surprised by how uh, impactful he was uh, on the court. But uh, at the time of the trade, uh, Boke says that Charlotte will always be his home, but that he has severed all ties with the organization. He says he wants no part in having his number retired uh, and something that seemed like a foregone conclusion a few months ago. That's from the, uh, the uh, reaction article uh, in ESPN.com of the art uh, of, of, of the trade. So the franchise still to this day has only retired Bobby Phil's number 13, but no other jerseys. Uh, our friend Curtis Harris, uh, he has a great piece about this in his retired jersey project on the uh, the Pro Hoops History newsletter that talks about uh, the Hornets and how they absolutely need to tra- uh, retire some numbers, including uh, Muggsy Bogues' number. I mean, we can tell Malik Monk that he needs to take a new number. I think that's fine. Yeah, we need to get yeah. that number one in the rafters, man. We, we need to. But I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that is him still saying no. I know he was honored at a game earlier a few years ago but i don't know i i don't know if he still doesn't want to do it or if that franchise just decided not to i'm, I'm led There's, to believe that the franchise probably doesn't want to because they haven't retired anybody's number except for bobby phil's but i don't know i, I feel like in 2021 if you said hey mugsy can we retire your number he'd probably say yes but i don't know i i, I don't know i couldn't find a, de- a definitive answer if he officially still to this day says no i don't want my number my number retired by them so i always think it's weird when franchises are so stingy with um retiring numbers and you know the Hornets haven't had a lot of great players in the history so um I I do kind of get to a degree that you know who else exactly would be worthy of that I mean they've had really good players but none for like a very long time I would have definitely that first year they came back to you know Charlotte and came back to being the Hornets and and not uh yeah the Bob Katz is what I'm seeing here on my screen. Uh, that <laughs> seems Bob impossible, Cats? but uh, Bob Katz uh, in Charlotte—that's weird. I don't remember that. that I think that's a well, what, 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 oh USBL. I think that's a USBL team that that Muggs. Oh yeah, yeah that on. makes sense. Okay, right. <laughs> that makes, yeah, yeah. It's one of those minor league teams. Uh, yeah. uh, right. But when they come back and they're and they're the Charlotte Hornets again, like I probably would have that year decide. Okay, you know, let's put Muggsy in the rafters. Let's put Zoe in there. Let's put Larry Johnson. You know, those sort of guys to really kind of say, "Hey, we're yeah. back and we're making that connection to the history." And especially yeah. now, as '90s nostalgia is just like insane right now, uh, it, it seems hard to believe that this Charlotte franchise hasn't decided to, you know, reach out to those guys or, or figure out some way to get their numbers retired. But uh, it didn't really end. Like it all ended on like terrible notes with all those guys. But I think all that is because George Shin, who is a very good guy, though Jason, really, really good guy. guy. Um, totally great. Yeah. You would hope that, like now with this new franchise, new leadership, or whatever, that that hopefully they would, you know, let it let it go. But uh, I don't know. So I don't know. I don't know if it's Muggsy on his own or, or Charlotte on their own. But uh, I think I want that number one up in the rafters for sure. So. Yeah, I, I think so. That, that would be good. Um, I concur. Um, I, I get I, I get mourning because he didn't, he wasn't there that long, and he's so synonymous with the Heat that yeah that that one may not make a lot of sense. I think Larry Johnson would. Yeah, he'd like to see that one too, and maybe the relation. I don't know how the relationship is there but um 
Kelly Trapuka. We'll Kelly Trapuka's yeah. number up there for sure. So. Yeah, yeah. Get Kurt Rambis's number. Yeah, up there, yeah, yeah. You know? uh, Vladdy. Yeah. Gerald Vladdy. Wallace. You can get Gerald Wallace up there. I, I, I take that one. He was really good. He was a Hornet. I, he, yeah. Theoretically, <laughs> I mean, hey, hey. If you look, if you look at the history books, then yeah, he was with the Hornets franchise. So interesting. Uh, don't believe. Yeah. It. Don't remember that at I, all. But I, okay. I, I don't know. It's confusing, but you know, I mean, it's not confusing at all. It makes total sense. So the nineteen eighty eight Washington Bullets. I, I was just, you know, I was perusing the page. So interesting team. A lot, a lot of guys here. So you, you got Moses Malone, of course. Um, you got Jeff Malone. So you got the Malone. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you got you got Barack the iconic Malones of the uh, the late eighties. Uh, yeah, Moses yeah. And Jeff. <laughs> right, Moses and Jeff. Hey, J- Jeff Malone. He was a fun player. Um, uh, Bernard King, he's the uh, you know, his comeback season. Oh, that's you know, he, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got hit hot plate John Williams. Um, oh, yeah. And, you, of course, you got Muggsy and you got Minute. Uh, you got Charles Jones, one of the Jones uh, brothers, one of the you know, thousand Jones brothers who played in the uh, NBA. Um, you've got uh, you've got Steve Coulter and Terry Catledge. So you have the Catman. You, you, got, uh, you got quite a little team there. You know, they uh, – they only won 38 games. But that I was, was going to say, I assume this team won 60 games and, and, and made a miraculous <laughs> run to the finals. But Hey, once they uh, once they ditched Kevin Lockery and got Wes Unsettled's coach, they went 30 and 25. There you so, go. Hey, yeah, yeah. Inspired them to, uh, you know, to, hey, they, they took the Pistons to uh, five games in the first round. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's look at that series and see, um, let's see how close it was. Eh, hey, the Pistons only won game two by one point. So, um, you know, the, uh, they had, they, they hadn't, uh, they hadn't won that game. The uh, bullets would have won the series. There you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty fun team. Yeah, I always forget about, uh, uh, Bernard King's, uh, late. Well, as many, many people yeah. probably do his, uh, watching. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, that's a fun team. He, yeah. He played really well for the, the bullets. He had quite a few years of a uh, good player there, but anyway, um, I believe we have uh, we finished with our We're done. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I'm looking at the uh, the expansion Charlotte Hornets, and I forget that their coach was named Dick Harter. Which uh, ah yes. Why don't you just go by Richard? I, Rick I believe, Rick Harter. No one's ever going to make anything if your name is Rick Harter. But I believe that there were three Dick coaches at that very time. Because there <laughs> was Carlissimo. <laughs> oh, yeah, there Don was, Nelson. There was, <laughs> there was Dick Harter. There was Dick Versace, and I believe that there was another another Dick coach. Um, at, at the same time, I'm, uh, I'm looking right now to see if I can figure out, oh, I think, I think Dick Mata was, was active in the league oh, at that point. Right. At some point yeah. Too. I don't know about uh, Dick Mata. Yeah. Yeah. Dick Mata was, he was kind of between coaching stints. Yeah. He became a coach again. He left Dallas in 87 and then he was coached for the Kings. In he had that, yeah. The Kings run. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Dick Harder I, did did he he was a coach until 1990 as well, and then they fired his ass. But uh, so so he would count. So he would be in the same year yeah. as, as, as Dick Mata that year. So and then I think Dick Versace also was um, a coach, yeah, from 89 to 91. So yeah, it was the it was a league full of dicks. A ton of dicks in the NBA. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. So um, anyway. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. Hopefully, you enjoyed the show, and hopefully, uh, check out uh, we've two hundred and sixty plus episodes in the archives. So, uh, feel free to uh, look back at those. A lot of good stuff there. Like, luckily, we talk about history, so most of the stuff we talk about is still timely, even if it's like five years later. So, um, 
Feel free to do that. Uh, you can find us at the stepbackatfansite.com, all kinds of great NBA content there. Uh, if you enjoy what we're, we're doing, uh, leave us a rating and review on the podcast provider of uh, your choice. Helps uh, listeners uh, find the show and uh, and it helps uh, the good things. Um, please uh, support our sponsor. Check out uh, earthechofoods.com slash minute media, promo code minute 15, get 15% off. And uh, anything else? Is there for anything, Rich? That's it. Yeah, I would just say, yeah, earthecofoods.com slash minute media. Use that promo code minute 15 and uh, get 50% off, is, is all I would say. But uh, this is fun. I really enjoyed this episode. So uh, hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot, everyone. And we'll be back again soon.